Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. This week, we've got another fun episode of short read-alouds from some of our favorite authors here at Scholastic. We know from research that reading aloud with your child is one of the most important things you can do, and it shouldn't stop once they can read on their own. According to data from our recent Kids and Family Reading Report, the frequency of reading aloud drops off significantly after kids turn five and again after they turn eight. But children between the ages of six and 11 overwhelmingly reported that they still love being read to. In the spirit of those findings, this week we're sharing five read-alouds for your 8- to 12-year-old. First up, here's Dave Pilkey and me reading from Dogman 2, Dogman Unleashed. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our second Dogman novel. This comic introduction will help you get caught up on the epicness. In a world where evil cats wreak havoc on the innocent. <laughs> and sinister villains poison the souls of the meek. One cop and one police dog had what it took to keep the peace. Stop, thief! No way! Officer Knight was the city's toughest cop. Super punching fists. He could bench press 500 pounds. Knees of fury. He had a pure heart. And a kung fu kicking feet. (laughs) (laughs) Greg the dog was an awesome cop too. Loyal brain. Hat. Mega sniffing nose. Super ears. And a tongue of justice. Yay! (laughs) And together they kept the city safe from scum. Chump. Kick! (laughs) Ow! (laughs) We love Dave. I can't say that enough. Now we'll hear from one of my new favorite authors, M.G. Leonard. She's reading from her debut novel, Beetle Boy. Dr. Bartholomew Cuttle wasn't the kind of man who mysteriously disappeared. He was the kind of man who read enormous old books at the dinner table and got fried eggs stuck in his beard. He was the kind of man who always lost his keys and never took an umbrella on rainy days. He was the kind of dad who might be five minutes late picking you up from school, but he always came. More than anything else, Darkus knew his dad was not the kind of father who would abandon his 12-year-old son. The police report stated that September the 27th had been an unremarkable Tuesday. Dr. Bartholomew Cuttle, a 48-year-old widower, had taken his son darkest cuttle to school and gone on to the natural history museum where he was the director of science he'd greeted his secretary margaret at 9:30 spent a morning in meetings discussing museum business and eaten lunch at 1 o'clock with an ex-colleague professor andrew appleyard in the afternoon he'd gone down to the collection vaults as he frequently would via the coffee machine where he'd filled his cup He'd exchanged pleasantries with Eddie, the security guard on duty that day, walked down the corridor to the vaults, and locked himself in one of the entomology rooms. That evening, when his father didn't come home, Darkus alerted the neighbours, and they called the police. When the police arrived at the museum, the room Dr. Cuttle had entered was locked from the inside. Fearing he may have suffered a heart attack or had an accident, 
they produced a steel battering ram and smashed the door open. The room was empty. A stone-cold cup of coffee sat with some papers on the table beside a microscope. Several coleoptera specimen drawers were open, but there was no sign of Dr. Bartholomew Cuttle. He had vanished. That passage sets off a madcap adventure that introduces Darkus to tons of beetles, a villain named Lucretia, and maybe the solution to the mystery of his father's disappearance. Speaking of mysteries, here's Scott Westerfeld, who's going to introduce another one with this reading from the whirlwind, harrowing beginning of Horizon. A tearing sound filled the plane, a metal shriek from directly overhead, the ceiling splitting open. The great spine of overhead luggage compartments and lights and little air blowers lifted away, shattering into a million pieces of plastic as it rose. The oxygen mast was yanked free from her hand and went spinning into the sudden wind. No way, she breathed. Through the huge hole, a sudden white sky shone down on Anna, hard sunlight and snow-filled air. The wind was freezing, blustering at hundreds of miles an hour, forcing her smoke-stung eyes into a squint. Her ears popped so hard, her whole head felt like it was burning. The gale in the cabin reached across the seat back pockets to seize magazines and safety cards and boarding passes, churning them into a blizzard of paper that slapped at her face and hands. But a moment later, all that debris had fluttered up and away. Nothing was left but the snapped wires and shreds of plastic at the edges of the torn roof, trembling madly in the wind. Wow. Talk about starting in the middle of the action. Now, here's Alan Gratz reading a heartbreaking scene from his New York Times bestselling book, Refugee. The part that I'd like to read for you is from Mahmoud's story. And it's in about the middle of the book. At this point, Mahmoud and his family have tried to cross the Mediterranean on a raft from Turkey to Greece. And they are into that journey some distance in when their raft strikes a rock and bursts. And they're all tossed into the water. And Mahmoud and his family are treading water. They're trying to survive. They don't know where they're going to go. They don't know how they're going to get out of the water. And the life vests that they have been sold are fakes. And so they are going to drown if they can't get out of this. The part I want to read to you is a a brief part where we join Mahmoud and his family in the water. Time passed. The rain stopped. The waxing moon even peeked out from behind a cloud. But just as quickly, it was dark again, and the cold wind and the salty spray and the swelling sea still tormented them. Mahmoud's legs were numb with cold and exhaustion. They felt like two lead weights he struggled to lift and churn to stay afloat. His mother had been quietly sobbing for what seemed like forever. Her arms no longer held Hana above the water, but just on top of it, like she was pushing along a tiny barge. Mahmoud's father did the same with Walid, trying to save his strength. Hana had gone as quiet as Walid, and Mahmoud wondered if they were still alive. He couldn't ask. Wouldn't. If he didn't ask, he couldn't know for sure. And as long as he didn't know for sure, there was a chance they were still alive. Mahmoud slipped beneath the waves again, longer this time than the last time. It was getting so hard to come up again to keep himself afloat. He rose again, pushing air out his nose, but he was tired. So very, very tired. 
He wished for a respite from swimming, just a moment to sit without working his arms and legs, to close his eyes and go to sleep. Water was sloshing in and out of Mahmoud's ears, but he thought he heard a drone just above the howl of the wind. In Syria, that sound would have sent him ducking for cover, but now it made his eyes widen, his legs kick just a little harder, a little higher. There, coming at them out of the darkness, another dinghy full of people. Mahmoud and his mother and father waved their arms and cried out for help. At last, the people on board saw them, but as the dinghy came closer, it didn't slow down. They weren't going to stop. The front of the dinghy chopped past Mahmoud, and he lunged for one of the handholds along the side. He caught on and grabbed his mother before the dinghy pulled him away. He swung mom to the side of the dinghy, and she grabbed hold, the wake from it almost swamping Hana. Behind them, Mahmoud's father also reached for the dinghy, but missed. It churned along, bouncing in the chop, and Mahmoud's father and brother disappeared into the darkness. Dad! Dad! Mahmoud cried, still holding on to the dinghy. Let go! A woman in the dinghy yelled down at him. You're dragging on us. Let us in, please, Mahmoud begged. It was all his mother could do to hang on to the dinghy and to Hana. We can't. There's no room, a man inside the dinghy yelled. Please, Mahmoud begged. We're drowning. I'll call the Coast Guard for you, a man said. I have their number on my phone. Another man reached down and tried to pry Mahmoud's hand from the dinghy. You're tipping us. Please, Mahmoud cried. He sobbed with the effort of fighting off the man's fingers and hanging on to the dinghy. Please, take us with you. No, no room. At least take my sister, Mahmoud begged. She's a baby. She won't take up any room. That caused much yelling and discussion on the boat. A man tried to pry Mahmoud loose again, but he hung on. Please, Mahmoud begged. A woman appeared at the side of the boat, her arms reaching down to Mahmoud's mother, reaching for the baby. Mahmoud's mother lifted the little ball of wet blankets up to the woman. Her name is Hana, she said, struggling to be heard above the roar of the engine and the splash of the waves. Someone finally pried Mahmoud's fingers off the side, and he slipped into the water and tumbled into the dinghy's wake. When he came up, he saw his mother had let go of the dinghy too. She was crying great howling tears and tearing at her clothes. Mahmoud swam over to her and wrestled her hands into stillness, and she put her head on Mahmoud's shoulder and sobbed. Mahmoud's sister was gone, and so were his father and brother. What a powerful passage. Alan's book is being acclaimed all over the country, and it's clear why. Finally, let's end our read-alouds with Pam Munoz-Ryan, who reads here from Esperanza Rising. A few days before her birthday, Esperanza begged Miguel to drive her to the foothills before sunrise. There was something she wanted to do. She woke in the dark and tiptoed from the cabin. They followed the dirt road that headed east and parked, where they could go no further. In the gray light, they could see a small footpath to a plateau. When they got to the top, Esperanza looked out over the valley. The cool, almost morning air filled her senses. Below, she could see the white roofs of the cabins in straight rows, the fields beginning to take form, and over the eastern mountains, a hopeful brightening. She bent over and touched the grass. It was cool, but dry. She lay down on her stomach and patted the ground next to her. Miguel, did you know that if you lie on the ground and stay very still, you can feel the earth's heart beating? He looked at her skeptically. She patted the ground again. Then he lay down as she was, facing her. Will this happen soon, Esperanza? Wait a little while, 
and the fruit will fall into your hand. He smiled and nodded. They were still. She watched Miguel watching her. And then she felt it, beginning softly, a gentle thumping, repeating itself, then stronger. She heard it too. Shump, shump, shump. The earth's heartbeat, just like she had felt it that day with Papa. Miguel smiled, and she knew that he felt it too. The sun peeked over the rim of a distant ridge, bursting the dawn onto the waiting fields. She felt its warmth washing over her and turned on her back and faced the sky, staring into the clouds now tinged with pink and orange. As the sun rose, Esperanza began to feel as if she rose with it, floating again, like that day on the mountain when she first arrived in the valley. She closed her eyes, and this time she did not careen out of control. Instead, she glided above the earth, unafraid. She let herself be lifted into the sky, and she knew that she would not slip away. She knew that she would never lose Papa, or El Rancho de las Rosas, or Avulita, or Mama. That book is so popular in this office, especially with my younger colleagues who grew up reading it. For more information about all of the books and authors featured in this episode, check our show notes or go to scholasticreads.com. Is there a topic you'd like us to discuss? We'd love to hear from you. Send a note to scholasticreads at scholastic.com. To help other book lovers find us, please review and subscribe to Scholastic Reads on your favorite podcast app. Special thanks to producer Emily Morrow, sound engineers Daniel Jordan and Chris Johnson, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads with you next time.